So I would invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 27, 14 verses. I'll be reading this from the English Standard Version translation. David writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamped against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Our God and Father, as we come to uh, be instructed by your scriptures, uh, we would pray for hearts molded by your spirit, uh, hearts that would be listening hearts and hearts that would be obedient hearts. And we do pray that you would illuminate us in the grace and wonder and awesomeness of the scriptures and their teaching. And that you would use them again and again and again as that primary means of grace of bringing you and your presence close to us and we and our souls close to you. That your spirit and your truth would guide us into all of your ways, and that we might know you more deeply in every respect, knowing you through Christ. We pray this, our Father, because we know that we have a purpose in this life and in this world. Uh, We know that we are called to be a witness to this world. But the key heart of our witness is to show ourselves as people who truly know you and love you, and will desire to glorify you above everything else. And so enable us to be so, 
enable us to do so. For the glory of your name, for Christ's sake, amen. <clears throat> I want to begin this morning by describing uh, the difference or have you think about the difference between something like a diary or a journal and a biographical work over and against a handbook or a training program, but on exactly the same subject. Think about that difference. In high school, I actually experienced that difference. Uh, I played basketball in high school in a program that used UCLA's John Wooden's high post offense, man-to-man defense, and a daily practice routine that exactly replicated what John Wooden did to such a degree that when I was at college and I was able to sit in on UCLA's early season practices, which were open to the student body, I understood every drill that Wooden and his assistant coaches were doing. My my technical knowledge, because of that kind of training in high school, made me a very informed and analytical fan while watching UCLA basketball. <clears throat> but in my freshman year of high school, I also read a basketball biography. It was the biography of Bill Bradley, who played for Princeton University, 1961 to 1965, who later went on to play 10 years for the New York Knickerbockers. But he was, during that era, Princeton's greatest player. Bill Bradley, for the, for the next 50 years, Princeton's greatest player. Um, he was a starting player even on the uh, USA's uh, sixth consecutive Olympic gold medal team that won in 1964. Now, this biography of Bradley during his Princeton years, it inspired me. Basketball became this person, and this person became basketball. And it so moved me, I was so transformed by this book from what was, for me, a very mediocre basketball player to a very, very exceptionally average basketball player. But listen, being average is a whole lot better than being mediocre. Now, here's the point. The biographical approach to this subject where I could see and read of a person's struggles and challenges. I could see his heart, his determination. I could see his practices, his approach to life, his passion. All of that told me so much more than any basketball handbook or a basketball training program ever actually communicated to me. You see, handbooks and training programs are good. They can be even great. But a person's life, journey, biography, gives a dimension, a tremendously deep human dimension that connects with who we are. And that connection, that identification, through that, we're able to make that without a person's life. It's, it's that connection that motivates and, and teaches us in a way that a handbook or a training program never could. That is why we need to come to the book of Psalms, not as a handbook, 
but it's a spiritual biography. Here are the real prayers and the real songs of God's people. God took the spiritual and biographical experiences of David and several others, and he used them personally to both teach his people and to challenge his people and to motivate his people and to model for his people the art and manner and practice of prayer. So the Psalms are not a handbook of worship. They're not a handbook on prayer. But they are the model and the example that we should read and that we should pray and that we should follow. So we come again to this book where God has designed to teach us about worship and prayer and to do so in a very intensive biographical manner where you and I can connect with who David is, a fellow sinner and a believer, and learn from his example how to pray. This morning we're looking at Psalm 27, and I want us to approach this psalm from this perspective, this main question. What should you pray as you pray for yourself? Now, the, the reason I pose this this way is because it's possible to think about the book of Psalms and even to think about our rubric of adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication and instruction and benediction to even think about that and think well why why aren't the book of, why isn't the book of Psalms like sort of equally proportioned between all of these things and it isn't in fact the preponderance of prayers that we actually find in the book of Psalms. You take these 150 Psalms, and if you were to say, type them by genre, where there's a genre that the scholars don't really look at. I mean, they talk about Messianic Psalms. They talk about Psalms of Lament. They talk about certain kind of worship Psalms and so forth, historical Psalms. But the, the predominant genre of Psalms are when the psalmist prays for himself. That's the largest number of any kind of category that you find in the book of Psalms, where David or others are praying, supplicating God for themselves personally. That's what we find in Psalm 27. And that's why the question we look at this morning is this, what should you pray as you pray for yourself? And the answer is found in this psalm. Now, I want to break this psalm down into three connected questions, all of which help us follow the train of thought that David presents here. First, in verses 1 through 3, the question would be, why should we pray? And then from verses 4 to 12, for what should we pray? And then verses 13 and 14, what then should we expect? So I want to begin with this first question. Why should we pray? And I'm talking about why should we pray for ourselves? Well, in working this through, I'm going to take you to the point where we will see that it's because of Christ, because of who he is, because of what he's done, because of what he continues to do for us. That is the paramount, preeminent reason for why we pray, why we pray for ourselves. So let's begin by looking at verses 
1, 2, and 3. I want us to consider that there's a scenario here that David presents, and it has four parts, and we'll look at each part. First of all, consider what is coming at David in terms of how he prays. What we see here are the offensive forces of evil. David delineates evildoers and adversaries and foes and as though it's an army, as though it's war. But the second part then is, what is David's defense? Well, his defense is the presence and the power of the Lord. He speaks of God as his light and his salvation, his stronghold. And that word there means defense or strength. And then thirdly, what does David see happening to this evil horde that's coming against him? Well, he sees that they stumble and fall. And why? Well, it's because of the Lord. And then fourthly, what is David's state of mind in the midst of all of this? Should he fear? No. Should he be afraid? No. He testifies, his heart will not fear. His heart will be confident. So we could sum up the scenario this way. Here is what David is teaching. Here is what David would say. If the Lord my God is for me, then what can ever stand against me? And notice, what David says is the Lord is, quote, my God. That is to say, David has the privilege of claiming God as his God. And that's personal. In fact, it expresses the person-to-person -person connection that exists between David and his God. Now, this has far-reaching implications for why we should pray for ourselves. It is because the central thing about being a Christian is that we have this personal relationship with God. So for a believer, it's never simply the God or the Lord or the light or their salvation or the stronghold. It is always my light, my salvation, my stronghold. Now, this, this thinking, this perspective that we find here at the beginning of Psalm 27, it's reflected in the New Testament. It's, it's reflected by the Apostle Paul in terms of the way he develops it in terms of God the Father in and through Christ the Son. And, and the place to see this is, in fact, in chapter 8 of Romans. You should turn there. Verse 31 captures the same thought that we can say David was expressing when Paul says this, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And of course, the answer is no one. Then Paul moves forward to set out the proof of why this is the case. Why is the case that if God is for us, no one can stand against us? So Paul's case essentially is this. Here is why nothing can ever be ultimately against us. Verse 32. Paul writes, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously 
Give us all things. And of course, Paul is saying, of course he will. God will give us with Christ freely all the things that we absolutely need with respect to our salvation, everything we need to live godly for him and to his glory, all things necessary for life and godliness, God freely gives to us in Christ. And then Paul goes on to elaborate God's sovereign provision and protection for us in Christ against every imaginable kind of foe or enemy that would ever seek to destroy us. And he begins expressing this with verse 33. Again, another question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And and the idea here is that of an accusation of sin against us before God. And Paul's response essentially is, no one. Why? Because, quote, it is God who justifies. You see, the supreme judge of all men and angels has declared that his elect are judged righteous in his sight. No accusation can be brought and stand against them before God. But Paul isn't finished. Paul goes on in verse 34 to raise a a kind of question that is similar but different. Who is to condemn? Paul's response is to point to the one and the only one who actually has the moral standing to condemn anyone, and that is Christ. Only Christ could ever condemn the elect. And Paul says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised who is at the right hand of God, who's interceding for us. The the one who could condemn is actually the one who intercedes for his elect. Paul has a third part to this argument that he has developed. Verse 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul mentions categorically every imaginable kind of foe or enemy that would ever seek to do so. Tribulation. Distress. Persecution. Famine. Nakedness. Danger or sword. And then Paul sums this up in verse 37 by saying, no, in all of these things, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then finally, in verses 38 to 39, Paul pulls this all together when he says, For I am sure, the word means convinced, persuaded, I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, this is why we pray. Because of Christ. Because of who he is. And because what God has done for us through him. And because of what Christ will always continue to do for us. You see, if the Lord Jesus Christ is for me, then what can ever stand against me? 
because the fullness of what David Psalm says at the very beginning would tell us Christ is our light. Christ is our salvation. Christ is our stronghold. Not just the light, not just the salvation, not just the stronghold. Rather, everything Christ is, he is to us. He is for us personally. We have a very personal reason and a very personal foundation for prayer in Christ. And this is the strongest inducement to pray, to ask God, to petition, to supplicate. Because there is an army of evil encamped against us, and there is a spiritual war that encompasses us. But in spite of this, we should be confident, we will be confident, because we can bring our prayers to God because of our personal relationship with Christ. Then consider verses 4 through 12, where David points in the direction of, for what should we pray? Out of these verses, David directs us to three key petitions, which are themselves variation, variations on the same basic theme. He points to the fact that we should pray to dwell in God's house. We should pray to seek God's face. And we should pray to learn of God's ways. So looking at verse 4, reading it again, David says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now the heart and center of this request is this, to dwell in God's house. Now I want you to think about this request that in imitation of David, that's what we should pray for ourselves as well. You see, David calls it the one thing that he asked for. It's the one thing that he seeks after. Now, there are so many other things that David prays about and prays for in the Psalms that we can recognize that that's not what David is saying. What he's really saying that this is the one thing above all other things that he seeks. This is the one main thing that he prays for. The one main thing that he prays for is that he would dwell in God's house with God. That idea is one of the big themes in the book of Psalms. The idea of dwelling with God, dwelling in his house. In fact, we can say that this is, not just according to the Psalms, but in the whole host of scripture, this is the big ultimate theme. This is the ultimate spiritual experience for the believer, and that is to dwell where God dwells and to dwell with God and to have God dwelling with us. This is the best of all blessings. In Psalm 65, verse 4, David returns to this theme and it expresses it this way. He says, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. You see, when you live with someone and someone lives with you, you truly come to know that person. And that's what David is praying for. He's praying to be in such a place that with God, 
He's able to gaze upon God. He's able to behold the beauty of the Lord. He's able to think about, to meditate, to inquire concerning God and his beauty, God and his glory, God and his magnificence, in order that he would know God. By this prayer, David prays to know God, that he may dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, David says this is his number one prayer. It's the prayer of first importance. It is the most important thing that we can pray for ourselves, bar none. Bar none. But then we move on to the second petition in verse 8, and it's a re-emphasis of this first petition. And, and, and here the petition is, pray to seek God's face. David writes, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, unto I seek. And this is to say that we must pray for the grace to seek God's face as well. And here's why. There is no prayer that is more contrary to our nature than this prayer because of the presence of indwelling sin. You see, what remains in us of Adam actually desires to hide from the face of God. The principle of indwelling sin responds to God in the same manner that Adam and Eve responded to God when they first sinned. They tried to hide themselves from the presence of God when God sought them in the garden. And this testifies to this conflict within the believer. Another way of talking about this is the spirit against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit. But the truth is, we want to believe in God. We want to walk with God. And yet at the same time, we often want to live out from under the direct gaze of God. Because indwelling sin encourages us to cherish independence and control. The, the essence of indwelling sin is to do it my way. Indwelling sin cries out, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's why this prayer, as a corollary to the first petition, that's why this prayer, seek God's face, is so incredibly important and significant. We must pray for the grace to do so because it is not in our natural inclination to move toward God in this way. We so deeply need the grace of God in order to seek the face of God. And the face of God is what we need. You know, very early on in the ministry of Dr. R.C. Sproul, he chose for his motto for Ligonier Ministries that Latin phrase, Coram Deo, which means before the face of God. And in its fullness, it means to live one's entire life in the presence of God before the face of God, under the authority of God and to the glory of God. That's what Christ saved us for. And this is what we must pray for, that we would seek the face of God.
moving down to verses 11 and 12, there's a third petition that accompanies these two. It's a third perspective, really on the same thing. David writes, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. David is saying, we must pray, Lord, teach us your ways. In the midst of the spiritual warfare that David is facing, what he needs is God's house. What he needs is God's face. And what he needs is to learn God's ways. He knows he needs to be taught the very words of God that God has spoken about God's own truth, God's own law, God's own ways. And here's why. David knows that either his life will be formed and conformed to the ways of God, or they will be formed and deformed by the ways of the world. There's no middle ground. We are backsliding if we are not seeking to dwell with God, if we are not seeking his face, if we are not seeking to be taught of him, if we are not moving toward God, we're drifting away. I know it's the case that sometimes we as Christians live as if our Christian life was like a boat. And generally speaking, we're sailing toward God. But as we're sailing toward God, we sort of get the, we sort of think that along the way we can drop an anchor. That is to say, we can sort of pause in our journey toward God. We can take a brief respite from the pursuit of the holy. And then after a while, we can begin again from there. Lift up the anchor and move on. But no, no, no. Our spiritual boat has no such anchor. If we are not seeking Christ, we're moving and drifting away. That is why we need to pray for ourselves to dwell with God, to seek his face, to be taught of him. This is where Christ wants us to be at his feet learning his ways so that we can walk on a path at a straight and level where our eyes can stay fixed on him. Now, wait, someone might say, are you suggesting that we can lose our salvation? No, not at all. No true child of God can ever lose his salvation. But you could drift. But before you drift, take the lesson and warning from David's own wife. He drifted. The sin that can take hold of you, it will have the power to take you further than you ever want to go, and it will cost you more than you ever want to pay, and it may bring such harm to others far beyond what you could ever, ever hope to repair. And that's exactly what your spiritual enemies desire. They can't, they can't take your salvation away from you. But they can make your life a backslidden, 
drifting mess. The army of evil is so eager to eat up our lives. The spiritual war rises up against us so powerfully. That's what our enemies seek to do. That's why we need to pray for ourselves. That's why we must ask God constantly, Lord, I want to dwell in your house. I want to seek your face. I want to learn of your ways. Almighty God, in the name of Christ, I want to pray for myself for what matters the most. But then finally, as we pray this way, what should we expect? David's answer is in verses 13 and 14. He sums up this way. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then an exhortation. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. Now lock in on two thoughts here that David gives us. First, seeing the goodness of the Lord. Secondly, having patience with courage. It is your privilege as a believer to expect an answer to this kind of prayer for what matters the most. It's your privilege to expect that you will see the goodness of God toward you. Even in this life. And the New Testament guarantees that this is so. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's the sense of David's prayer. When we pray for what is of first importance about our lives, when we pray to dwell with God, when we pray to seek his face, when we pray to learn his ways, we can have this confident patience with courage that God will work out his answers in such a way to all of these prayers that we will see that God is working for our good. And we will see some of that goodness from God, not just in the world to come, but even in this life. That's God's promise to us in Christ. And so David says, but wait for it. With a strong heart and courage, wait for it. Be courageously trusting in God with patience. Wait for the Lord. So pray for yourself. Pray for what you need the most. Pray that you'll more faithfully pursue the presence of God, seeking his face and learning his word. When you're faithful to God in this way, you will see with your own eyes that God is causing all things to work to the good, your good, as one who loves God, as one who is called according to his purpose. And of course, what is that purpose that he's called you to? That purpose is what God saved you for in Christ. 
God saved you in and through Christ so that you would become not just a believer, but a believer who worships him in spirit and in truth. Your present purpose, your eternal purpose, that you would glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, the last thing I want to point out to you this morning comes from Luke chapter 10, 38 to 42. story about Jesus, his disciples are with him, and Mary and Martha. Beginning at verse 38 of Luke 10. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much, with much serving, And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary's chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. David prays. For this one thing, that he would dwell at the feet of Jesus, seeking his face, learning his ways, knowing fully that Jesus, you are my light and my salvation and my stronghold. We need to pray in this way. We must seek from God what matters the most. And God will grant it to us. And God will never take it away. In Jesus' name, he won't. Amen. Let's pray. Father, give us the desire, because of all that you've done for us in Christ, to seek your face, to desire to dwell with you, the desire to learn of you and to know your ways. And remind us from David's testimony to the story of Mary, that there is one thing only ultimately that's necessary. And that is to have Jesus first and foremost, to trust in him, to abide in him, to dwell in him, to seek his face and to learn of him. That in this way, this is the way that you enable us to be of any earthly good and any lasting earthly good and with any eternal fruit at all. That if we're here to be salt and light to this world, what is most necessary is that we would live the purpose of worshiping you in spirit and in truth, but we will only desire and want to do so at first we are able to say, the one thing that I seek, the one thing I ask of the Lord, the one thing that I would seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. May that be our heart's 
desire, Almighty God, to live quorum day to the glory of Jesus. Amen.